Good morning. Acts 26, 19 through 23 says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the regions of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying, both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. And verses 28 through 32 say, And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would that God, not only you, but also all who hear me this day, might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with him, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve. Well, we've been on this wonderful journey through the book of Acts. Of recent, Paul has been arrested. He's been uh, taken before the Jerusalem council. He's been before Felix and Festus, who are Roman uh, leaders. He has uh, faced the Sanhedrin, which is the highest Jewish court. And while false accusations were made about him, nothing would stick. Yet, he was never released from prison. And you would ask, why? Why is this? In fact, now he stands before King Agrippa. This is uh, Herod Agrippa. His grandfather was the Herod who tried to have baby Jesus killed. His father uh, killed James, the disciple James. And so Paul is now standing before the grandson and he takes the entire chapter, chapter 26, 26, to really explain his testimony and who he is in Christ. And he's trying to appeal to King Agrippa, this, this Hebrew, to receive Jesus. And Agrippa basically says, depending on the version that you have, but in one version he said, you almost persuaded me to be a Christian. Almost. Well, folks, you all know what almost is good for, horseshoes and hand grenades. It doesn't work for salvation. Almost equals 
not saved. And I want to take you today, and uh, there, we could have just taken and broken down this text throughout the chapter, and, uh, and that would have been very uh, sufficient for teaching the Word of God. But for some reason, and that's what we do week by week, we go verse by verse through the text. We don't skip over passages that are difficult to deal with. This one's not difficult, it's just that I, for some reason, am compelled of the Lord to focus in on the subject of chapter 26. The absolute subject of this chapter is salvation. He is presenting to King Agrippa the opportunity to be saved. And that really got me thinking, and I want to, to talk to you today. Not everything in life matters. In the focus of chapter 26, Paul presents the gospel to the king, and there's only one right response, and the king doesn't give it. There's only one answer that matters when we're presented the gospel. Are you saved? Are you saved? On this subject, the Bible doesn't leave us any wiggle room for our own personal interpretation. Let me raise the stakes here for a moment. This subject, the subject of salvation, has eternal consequences. This isn't a subject that you want to leave to chance. You don't want to get this wrong. In fact, a hundred years from now, every single one of you in this room will think that this is the only subject that mattered. A hundred years from now, you won't be concerned with your investment portfolio, your health care plan. You won't have a concern over politics or whether the United States of America still stands. A hundred years from now, none of that will matter. There's only one subject that you will look back upon as the most important subject in your life. I want to talk to you about salvation. If a, if a doctor removes a malignant tumor from your body, you would say, he saved me. If a fireman came in and rescued you from a collapsing building, he saved me. If a lifeguard were to pull you out of the undertow after you went down, he saved me. In all three of those instances, there is certainty that you were saved because you're still with us. You're still alive. So here's a question. How certain are you of your eternal salvation? You don't want to wait until after you're gone to try and figure that one out. You, you really do want to work on that now, that question, am I saved? The Bible teaches us that we all have a terminal disease called sin, and unless we're saved from our sins, we will die and spend eternity in hell. Look, look I'm not trying to be a negative sayer here. I'm not trying to be a prophet of doom. I'm telling you what Jesus said. I'm telling you what the prophets said. I'm telling you what the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary to ever walk this earth, said. 
Everybody's born into sin. Every one of us are sinners. Every one of us are astray from God, and not a single one of us can save ourselves or contribute to our salvation. That is God's business. That's what God does. He is the one. He's the only one through Christ, the perfect one, who can redeem us from our sins. Are you saved? His plan required that his only son, Jesus, would come to the earth, which he did. And he would live his life as a man, which he did. And he would never sin a single time in his 33 years clothed in flesh and blood. And that's true. He never sinned. And that he would go to the cross, and on the cross he would give a sufficient sacrifice to atone for the sins of every person who believes, which he did. And while many today have heard the gospel, many go to church, the Bible also teaches that not everyone who claims to be saved is truly saved. As a, as a shepherd, as a, as a pastor, I know I stand with all the pastor elders of our church, and I say to you, we are very burdened for that same cause in this church. The chances are very high that not everybody in this room right now is saved. That's just the reality of it. You say, but Pastor Greg, I know I'm saved. Listen, just saying that you're saved doesn't save you. Most people will say that they're going to heaven, but when you ask them about their salvation, how do you know that you're saved? They'll begin to tell you how they were saved. Knowing how to get saved doesn't actually save you. Any more than knowing how to make cookies actually puts cookies in the cookie jar. We're going to get this figured out. Do you get the idea that Satan's not happy about this? Remember what I said earlier? We prayed and we said, may God be glorified, may the church be edified, and may Satan be horrified. He's horrified right now for what's happening. I believe that. How do I raise this? There we go. Can you hear me? Wonderful. There needs to be saved, there has to be evidence. Evidence. What is the certainty of your salvation? I want you to turn real quick to John chapter 8. We will be here for just a moment, and then we're going to move into Matthew's gospel. Uh, again, what, what triggers, what catapults us in this direction of dealing with salvation is the Acts 26 text. But rather than just take you through the text verse by verse, I really feel compelled to the Lord to focus in on the subject of that chapter, which is salvation. And I just feel really led of the Lord to 
present to you this message. In John chapter 8, in verse 30, Jesus had been teaching that he is the light of the world and that he would die for the sins of mankind. And in verse 30 it says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Many believed in him. So here's the first point of our message today. Write it down. Many believed in Jesus. Or many people believe in Jesus. But not everyone who believes in Jesus is saved. And we're going to prove that to you through the Bible. It's possible to have a level of belief in Jesus that doesn't actually save you. It's not saving faith. It's highly likely that there are some of you here in this room right now who believe in Jesus and you're not saved. James chapter 2, verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So just because you say you believe in Jesus puts you at least in the category of the demons because they believe as well that Jesus is God. There's no hesitation in them. But does anybody here believe that you'll see demons in heaven? There is a level of belief in Jesus that doesn't equate to salvation. How bad would it be to enter eternity only to learn that you're on the wrong belief train? You believed in Jesus, but not to salvation. When it says here in the text, as he was saying these things, many believed in him, the inference is that they believed unto salvation. Jesus wasn't convinced of that. And later, it will play itself out. Before we go there, though, I want you to take your Bible, because what we're talking about this morning is so serious. I want to challenge you to give your full attention to this message for the next few minutes. Turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13. We're going to pick it up at verse 3. These are the words of Jesus, sharing that not everyone who appears to be saved is saved. This is not coming from some theologian who had this thought or this interpretation of the Bible. This is Jesus himself, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, telling us that not everybody who says they are saved is actually saved. In fact, what you're going to find is only a few are truly saved. Verse 3, and he told them many things in parables, Matthew 13, 3. He said this, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell down along the path, and birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they, were, they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seed fell, or seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Do you understand what we just read? 
It's okay if you didn't. The disciples didn't understand it either. So Jesus continued. Verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word, the kingdom, the word of the kingdom, what is the word of the kingdom? The gospel, that Christ died for your sins, that he rose from the dead to prove that he redeemed us from sin, and we can be saved by repenting of our sin and believing in him because God chose you to believe in him. Listen, anyone who hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, that means they hear the good news, they hear the free gift of salvation given by God, but it makes no sense to them. They just don't get it. He said, if they don't understand it, then the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So the person that Jesus just described, who he's like, his heart is like the seed that fell on the path, where at first it falls, he doesn't understand it, and Satan comes along and steals it, takes it away. Let me ask you a question. Is that person that Jesus just described, are they saved or are they unsaved? The seed fell on them, but they're unsaved. This guy hasn't even made it to Chipotle for lunch today. And he's saying, what the world was the preacher talking about today? Makes no sense to me. That's our modern translation right there. Those who are sitting here right now, and it makes no sense to you what we're talking about. Verse 20, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. He's like, I want to be saved. That's the best news I've ever heard. It's free. I love free stuff. Sign me up for salvation. I want to go to heaven. I mean, there's great joy as the word falls upon him. Yet, verse 21 he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when, here it is, tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word of God, on account of the gospel. You mean this is going to cost me something? Are you telling me that I actually have to live for God? You mean I might lose some friends because of my faith? I didn't know this would affect my entire life. As soon as he finds out there's a cost to following Jesus, the spouse isn't tracking with it. You know, his friends start making fun of him. Immediately, it says, he falls away. Saved or unsaved? Unsaved. Jesus has now given us two different stories, and in both stories, the seed fell upon them, and they did not, they were not saved. Let's keep going. Verse 22, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. He hears the word. He knows the, there's a God and that he needs to be ready to meet God when he dies. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. He's thought about eternity, but the temporal pressures, the cares of this world, those are his main concern not Jesus, not eternity. And it, here it is in the text. Look at this. 
and it proves unfruitful. Oh, he's fruitful in business. He's fruitful in many ways in the world, but he's unfruitful in the spiritual sense. There's no fruit that follows his salvation. Saved or unsaved? Hey, man, we're not doing real good here. We're 0 for 3. The word has fallen on three different types of soil, three different types of hearts, and all three rejected salvation. Why are you doing this, Pastor Greg? Because it's very likely some of you are one of those three hearts. And, and, and you, because the seed fell on you, because you can actually quote what it means to be saved, you think you're saved. Knowing how to be saved doesn't save you. Verse 23, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word, and listen now, understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. That just means that each of us will bear a different amount of fruit. We're not going to all be equal in our fruit bearing. But the proof that you're a believer is you are bearing fruit. Saved or unsaved? Saved. One out of four were saved. What's the surety of salvation? All saved people bear fruit. Some a lot, some a little less, some a lot less. But they all bear fruit. Verse 24, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may not be compared to a man, uh, may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So what do you have in the field? You got two different types of seed. You got weeds and you got wheat. So when the plants came up and bore grain, when the weeds appeared also, and the servants of the, servants of the master uh, of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servants then said, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Understand that early on in a field, you cannot tell the difference between wheat and darnel. Darnel was the weed that he's referring to here. They look the same. The only time you can tell that one is a weed and one, the other is wheat is when it's time to harvest, when it bears fruit. Darnell will not bear fruit. But Jesus doesn't remove the weed while the weed is still growing. Jesus doesn't come into the church and pull out those who are not truly saved because he said that will probably even mess up some who are saved, but who are weak in their faith. So he leaves them in the church so that at the end, when Jesus returns, then he separates 
the weed from the wheat. And it's too late for you to be transformed by God into wheat if you wait until then. You don't believe me? By the way, many people believed in Jesus but are not saved. We already established that. Did you know that Gallup, uh, I'm sorry, not Gallup, but George Barna came out with a poll. Here's what he said. 92% of Americans believe Jesus was a real person who actually lived. Majority of Americans believe they are going to heaven. I would say probably everybody in this room, it's likely everybody in the room thinks they're going to heaven. Not everybody is. This is serious stuff. This is why right now if you're thinking, man, I wish my friend Don, my, my, my friend Susan, I wish they were here to hear this. Well, God's not talking to Don or Susan right now. He's talking to you. This is about you. How certain are you that you're a Christian? Now, take your Bible, turn to Matthew 7, 21, just to show you, if we can, in the words of Jesus, how deceptive Satan is to have people thinking they're saved when they're not. Satan's tactic isn't always to keep you from the word. If you've already heard the word, now his tactic shifts. Now, let me give them the sense of salvation, but there's no true salvation. They'll go through the rest of their life, and then they'll face eternity and face the ultimate rejection. Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, this is Jesus speaking, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, look at that now, look at the word he used, many, not a few, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? These people really did these things. You, you don't you don't believe that these people came before Jesus thinking they could fool him, do you? They knew they couldn't fool Jesus. They did them. These people were able to go out and cast out demons. They were able to do many mighty works. They were able to prophesy. We have people today who do those things, and Jesus doesn't know them. But it starts out, he's saying the words, Lord, Lord, you can say the right words and not be saved. It's not about doing religious stuff either. Anyone can talk religious. Anyone can memorize Bible verses. Anyone can sing religious songs. But none of these things guarantee that you're saved. Write this down. The doing, the doing is not the saving. The doing is the proving. The doing is not the saving. The doing is the proving. These people came and are basing their salvation on what they did. That's how they know they're saved, because of what I did for God. No, no. God does the saving. Then after you're saved, doing 
for the Lord, serving the Lord, doing his work matters, but it has no bearing on salvation. This is where these people were wrong. The proof of salvation is doing the will of the Father, the things the Father wants you to do, not the things you did to try and prove yourself. Trying to prove yourself to the Father. Verse 23, and then I will declare to them, look at this, I never knew you. We're talking about people who did miracles, people who prophesied, people who did these things in the Lord. They called out his name. They went to church. They sang the songs. They thought they knew Jesus. And Jesus said to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. They were practicing religious things, but never submitted to God's will. They never came to Jesus on his terms of peace. They developed their own terms of peace, thinking Jesus would accept it. Clearly, he did not. When you're truly saved, your life becomes a demonstration of God's will. Self-righteousness can never prove a person's salvation. If your life hasn't changed since you've believed, you're probably not saved. And if your faith in Christ hasn't grown through the years, you have to question whether you are truly saved. John chapter 8 again, verse 30, he was saying these things, many believed in him. That was the first point. Jesus, Jesus wasn't so sure about that. In verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Now he's going to separate. He's going to point out who is saved and who isn't. Those who abide in his word are saved. Because that's the will of the Father, that you would know the Son, that you would study the word, that you would come to know the full disclosure of God. That's part of being saved. Saved people do that. So here's the second point. First point is, not everybody who believes is saved. Second point, true disciples of Jesus abide in his words. To abide in the Greek, it means to continue. It means to remain. It means to live in his word. You make the Bible your habitat. It's where you live. I live the Bible. See, the word believe means to live by. But believe, you could believe in LeBron James. Man, I live by anything LeBron says. I hope that's not true for you. That would be a big mistake. Okay? But when, when you say, I believe in Jesus, it means you live by Jesus. Well, how do you know how to live by Jesus? Because he's given you his word. That's how you know to live by Jesus, by his word. I mean, just think about this. When you abide in his word, I'm trying to help you this morning to know the difference between true salvation and what isn't salvation. And by the way, salvation comes by grace through faith. It is an act of grace of God towards you. God shows his mercy to you that he would save you, that he would choose you. That is God's mercy. And, and your response is to abide in him. To find your life in him. I, I, I know him. I truly know him. It's an ongoing continual growth of knowing him. 
It's not a head knowledge knowing him. When you abide in his word, you will be more loving than you used to be. That's just the reality. You're going to keep growing in your love. You started out as a believer and you weren't a loving person. You got saved. All of a sudden, God opened your heart. By the Holy Spirit, you're starting to love people more. But five years down the road as a believer, you're loving them even more. It continually grows. That's the sign that you're saved. You're abiding. You're living out what you know because it's in your heart to live it. You're compelled by the grace and the love of God to love others the way God loved you when you were not lovable. Amen? None of us, see, I think some of us struggle with that. We think that we were good enough to be saved. That's why God chose me, because I'm a good person. No! If that's, nobody's good enough. God chose you because you're a miserable wretch. That's the truth. You could never get to heaven by yourself. You're not good enough for that. God loved you. He had mercy upon you. He showed his grace to you. When you abide in his word, you will have a great regard, a great respect, a great affection for truth. And when I say truth, I mean the Bible. Is that true of you? Are you growing in your love of God? Is that true of you? Would someone who's watching you closely be able to look in your life and go, he loves God more now than he did then. He's growing. She's growing. You'll be more humble. You'll be less self-reliant. Are you more humble after being in the Lord a few years than you were when you first got saved? Good question. Are you less sure of self and more sure of Christ? You see, when you're truly saved, you rely more on God and less on you. Who do you rely on in difficult situations? Where did you turn? Where did you find your strength? Saved people are moving forward towards God in life, always. doesn't mean there's not setbacks, by the way. It doesn't mean that you, because you're saved, you're no longer tempted like the rest of the world. You're tempted just as much and in some ways even more and more intense because Satan puts his crosshair on you now because you're a Christ follower. But even though you fall short from day to day, you've been covered by the grace of God. You've been justified by faith. You've been redeemed. You've been changed. And every day, you just keep walking in that and growing in that. Verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Look at the next thing here now. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What's the difference between a person who doesn't understand the parable that Jesus gave and a person who does? I'm talking about right now in this room. What's the difference? One person, the Holy Spirit has opened his or her eyes to see it. The Holy Spirit has opened to you the door of salvation. And all of a sudden, it clicks. 
It'd be the difference that if we were in this room at 12 midnight and there's no stars, no moon to be seen out in this, it's as dark as it can get, and all of a sudden, the light just comes on. That's what it looks like when someone is saved by God and they start to understand. Man, I hope that's you today. I hope you're understanding. I hope your heart's open to understanding. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's a third point. You know, not everybody who believes is saved. Secondly, true disciples of Jesus abide in his word. And thirdly, abiding in Jesus' word leads to spiritual freedom. It's when you abide in his word, when you're walking with the Lord, when you know him, when you are walking in your faith, that's when you really begin to experience freedom in living. But that freedom didn't start with you living. The freedom started in an instant when you believed and the spirit of God transformed you. He actually regenerated your dead spirit, made it alive so that you could be with, with God. That's a change, man. Now, all of a sudden, I am set free from what? Sin! Abiding in, in Jesus' word leads to spiritual freedom. The word know in the Greek, gnosko, it's a prolonged form of a primary verb. And listen, to become more acquainted with over time. That's what it means. To become more intimate. The Greek gnosko is, that word to know, is the Jewish idiom for sexual intimacy between a man and a woman. The longer you know one another, the more intimate you grow to one another, the closer you are to one another. Whatever you were when you got, you got married, and by the way, Roy and Rebecca are here today. Where I, I saw them. There they are. They just got married. Was it a, last Saturday, a week ago? So wonderful. Now they're they're married couple. Mr. and Mrs. Roy Wolf. Let's thank the Lord for that. Amen. All right. It's awesome. But when you first get married, you, you do know each other. Obviously, you better know them if you married them. But five years later, 20 years later, 50 years later, you really know them. <laughs> There's more intimacy. There's a greater understanding that's gone on here. Mm. So we're not talking about head knowledge of truth, knowing scripture. This, in, this implies an intimate understanding, to know something personally, to experience truth intimately with Jesus. You say, how? How does that happen? How do I make that happen? You can't make it happen. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Now take your Bible, turn to John chapter 14. I'm going to give you two verses about the work of the Holy Spirit. These in no way are comprehensive of the work of the Spirit, but for this message on salvation, they are very important especially after you're saved as you walk with Christ. John 14, verse 16. And I will ask, the, this is Jesus preparing his disciples for his departure. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Look at that. Helper is in is capital H. Maybe your Bible says counselor, capital C. To be with you how long? How long will the Holy Spirit be with us? Forever. Even the spirit of truth, that's, that's another name for the Holy Spirit. The spirit of truth, 
whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you. He's speaking to his disciples in person. And future tense will be in you. John chapter 16, go two, two chapters over, verse 13. Jesus still teaching his disciples. He says, when the spirit of truth comes, look at this now, he will guide you into all the truth. Let me just say this to you. There is no truth, absolute truth, that you come into of your own thinking. If you have absolute truth, it is the Holy Spirit who put that in you, that understanding. Aren't you thankful for that? You should give God glory and thanks every day as you grow as a believer, as the Spirit makes things known to you. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. Jesus says the Holy Spirit will glorify me. Do not try and glorify the Holy Spirit. There are people today, that's the focus of their life, is the Holy Spirit, the work of the Spirit. Oh, the Spirit's moving. Are you Spirit-filled? Are you in a Spirit-filled church? You're not to bring glory to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings glory to Jesus. Even he's trying to point you to Jesus. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. His work is not to speak on his own. The Holy Spirit never speaks on his own. He only speaks what he hears from the Father, from the Son. Verse 31, back in our text, John chapter 8. Jesus said to the Jews who believed, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I'm closing this down. Listen, this is what the life of a Christian is all about. You abide in Jesus' word, you experience his truth and by his truth, he sets you free. You're set free by truth. How many of you in an area of your life right now would say that there's an area in my life I feel bound up I just don't feel released. I just feel bound up. It's just irritating me. Let me tell you, that. Here, okay, step back from it for a second. I'm going to give you the, the broader view. Where you feel bound, you're obviously not in freedom, right? Jesus said, truth will free you. So what is he saying? If truth frees, what's the opposite of truth? Error. Error will bind you. In that area where you're feeling bound, you've not yet applied the truth. You're walking in error. Think about somebody that you had a bad experience with. The friendship was broken. And now I don't want to see them. I don't want anything to do with them. In fact, I can't forgive them for what they did to me. You're in bondage. You're not walking in truth, and you're not free because you're in error. The Bible doesn't teach what you're practicing. The Bible says you must forgive. Doesn't mean you have to be their best friend. Doesn't mean you have to spend time with them. Doesn't mean you have to hang out again. You don't have to be friends that way. But you better forgive them, and you better let them know that you forgive them. See, that's, that's when you do that, you just came into freedom out of error and bondage. 
But what am I free from? Let's just write these three things down. You're free from three things. Number one, I'm free from the penalty of sin. That's when, that happens when you're saved. The second you're saved, no longer is sin's penalty over you like it is over mankind. See, the penalty of sin is the wages of sin is what? Death. You'll die and go to hell if you're living in your sin, if you're born into sin, which is everybody. So when you're saved, that's broken. The penalty's broken over you. Christ fulfilled. He made the payment for your sin because he bore your sin. He carried your sin to the cross. And God judged him instead of you for the sins that he bore. So you're free. Praise God. Secondly, free from the power of sin. The power of sin is different than the penalty of sin. The penalty is that you're lost until you're saved. The power is, after I'm saved, I just can't seem to get away from this sin. This one sin, this besetting sin keeps bothering me. No, no. God broke the power of sin over your life. You don't have to be overpowered by sin any longer. And the Bible will show you how to not... What does the Bible say? When you come into a place or whatever where you're being tempted by Satan, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Yeah, but it's too hard to resist. Then get out of there. Joseph didn't say to the Potiphar's wife when she grabbed hold of him, wanting to have an intimate moment, physical intimacy with him in a moment, he didn't say, hey, hang on, Potiphar's wife. Hey, come over and sit on this bed, and let's talk about it. Let me explain to you why I can't go forward with this with you. No, it says he fled. Get out of there. Some of you, the reason the besetting sin is still with you is because you've never really gotten away from it. You've never put yourself in a different place. You're still able to fall into it because you're making it available. You've got to change completely. If you're a former drug addict, one thing you've got to do is get new friends. You can't keep hanging out with the same folks. That's ridiculous. You say, well, I want to have a ministry with them. You're not, you're not free yet. You have no ministry with them. You're not free. Let the person who's truly free have a ministry with them. You go put yourself in a different situation. You minister to the nursing home. You go take roses to the ladies in the nursing home and sit with them and share the love of God with them and pray for them. That's your ministry. See, now you're, you're, you're resisting by not being in the presence of. It's very important. Thirdly, what does Christ set us free from? He, free from the pain of sin. The pain of sin. Any of you look back on your past and just cringe some of the things you've done? I know I can relate to that. But you know what? When I come to understand what it means to be justified by faith, Knowing what Jesus did for me on the cross, he redeemed me. The idea is of redemption is that, that I was on the trade block, a slave trade block. And all of these people out there are wanting to bid on me to take me home as their slave because of my sin. And they want to own me. And then Jesus showed up walked through the crowd, looked up at me, and he said, 
I'll buy him. I'll purchase him. And Satan looked at Jesus and said, you can't afford him. You can't. You don't want to do that. It'll cost you too much. Jesus said, I will pay for him. And Jesus went to the cross and he died for me. If you, don't, if you can't personalize that and believe that Jesus died for you, how can you, how can you even come to understand salvation? Jesus redeemed me from a life of slavery to sin. So thankful for that. Aren't you? You've been set free. You've been set free. Look at verse 33. And they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will or you will become free? See, when you're in bondage, you don't realize you're in bondage. You think you're free. You're not. You just don't know what real freedom is. You're so used to the bondage, you've even called it freedom. Anybody who goes out and sows their oats and says that they think they're free, finally free for the first time, they don't realize how far in bondage they are. Thir verse 34, and Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That's an interesting way of saying it. Everyone who practices sin is the slave of sin. Who commits sin? Everybody. He's really saying we're all sinners. So that's him saying, all we like sheep have gone astray. We turn each one to his own way. The Lord has laid upon him, upon Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Genuine disciples recognize that. That apart from the work of Christ in my life, that I was redeemed, I was justified. God looks at me now as if I never sinned. I don't have to live in past sin any longer, worried about past sin letting it beat me up any longer because God doesn't see me that way any longer. Now I am a child of God. I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been redeemed. I've been transformed. Genuine disciples know what they've been transformed from. They know what they used to be and they know what God's done for them and they have an immense amount of gratitude. And that's what drives them to serve the Lord to do the works that God's called them to do. Are you driven by that? See, I'm not compelled to be a pastor because I think being a pastor might get me to heaven. There's pastors who won't go to heaven. It's true. No, I, I, I pastor because I never forget what Jesus saved me from. The love that he showed me Mm. I told my dad this. He doesn't remember it. He says he doesn't remember it. Um, it's embarrassing. When I was in college, on my birthday, they snuck me in. When I, before I recommitted my life to Christ, and I did that in college. But before that happened, I sowed some oats. And one night, my college roommates, this was at a Christian college, you could be kicked off out of the school for drinking. And one night on my birthday, an early birthday, I wasn't old enough to go to a bar. So they snuck me in on my birthday because this particular bar had five beers for a dollar that night. On the way home, traveling down I-69, heading back to Anderson, Indiana, they stuck me on the back of the bed of a pickup with my head hanging off the tailgate so I could throw up. Got me home, 
took me upstairs to the dorm room, threw me in my bed, and laid a trash can next to my head. And that's supposed to be a good time. The phone rings in the dorm on that hall. I go, they, they, I was out. They came in and said, hey, Greg, wake up. Your dad's on the phone. So I try to pull together what little sense I had. And I staggered to the phone and immediately addressed my dad. And he knew. Because I was, I'm sure, slurring my words. And my dad, there was silence. And he could have done a number of things. One, he could have just laid into me, right? Put the plaster where the misery is and just give me a verbal spanking on the phone. There was silence. And then he said, son, uh, happy birthday. We love you. Go get some sleep. That was it. That's showing love when I was very unlovable. That's what God has done for us. He's loved us when we were unlovable. And when you come to understand that by the Holy Spirit and you're saved, you just want to serve the Lord. You just want to live for the Lord. Not as a reason for God accepting you in heaven because you're already saved, but because you're compelled by the same love that reached out to you to now take that love and share with others. And it's your act of service that becomes an act of worship before God for the right heart, the right reason. At that time, I had no clue. In fact, if somebody said, you're going to be a preacher. Are you kidding me? <laughs> And my buddies in college, when I became a pastor, the old buddies that I used to hang out with, they laughed. you got to be kidding. Greg's a pastor? In fact, the guys in seminary on that campus laughed at, laughed at it because I used to run the off-campus dances, which were illegal. I, I, I made some good money doing that. Um, and uh, I thought it was a great time. But I was away from Christ, didn't know him. And the Lord redeemed me, he saved me, reminded me of that childhood experience of salvation. And I recommitted my life to Christ and later became a pastor. I am so thankful just for the privilege to be a pastor. I'm thankful for the privilege today in this moment to share this message on salvation with every one of you. So the question, are you saved? Truly saved? Is there fruit that follows your salvation? Are you convinced that when I stand before the Lord, he's not going to say, depart from me. I never knew you, those who practice lawlessness. You say, no, but I was a good person. How could he say I practice lawlessness? Because he fulfilled the law. And that wasn't good enough for you. You made your own laws, your own set of righteousness to follow. 
you aren't saved. Not until you surrender to his terms of peace. What are those? Complete sellout to Christ. I am a lost sinner, and he is a savior. And I, by faith, believe in him as the son of God who died for me, who can forgive me of my sinfulness, who will raise me on the last day, and I will spend eternity in heaven with him. You can have that surety of salvation today. Let's all stand. I want to invite the elders to come up, if they will, and just stand, and also those who would come and who also uh, prayer partners, those who would pray with people. If you're not sure that you're saved, but in this moment, God is calling you, and you are ready to surrender to Jesus' terms of peace, I want you to just come forward. By the way, the second that you believe in Jesus and you turn from your sin, you repent, at that twinkling of an eye, it's even faster than the twinkling, you're saved. So you're not coming forward to get saved. That would be an act of works, right? That's not going to happen. But we want to be able. The Bible says, confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Believe in your heart that God raised from the dead. You will be saved. You need to confess it. You need to say today. I'm saved. Those of you who are not sure you're saved, for various reasons, they'll pray with you. Maybe they've got some biblical truth that'll bring you out of error and into freedom today. Father, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for your goodness to us. We sang about your goodness today. We sang about your salvation today. And now in this moment, many people are hearing and lord we know that your spirit is reaching that you want to save them oh god may we surrender may we surrender all today to you and find salvation in this place that this would be a moment in our life a milestone moment the greatest moment because the issue that we're going to be, the only issue we're going to be concerned about 100 years from now, we settled today. We responded by surrendering to the call of God in salvation. Thank you, Lord. Now we, as a church, we give thanks for salvation. And we give thanks for the people that you've assembled, some who aren't even saved. And we're just so thankful they're here because they had a chance to hear this message may they respond now and may we respond some of us might have been in the church from the time we started and yet today we came came to realize i've not truly been saved there's no fruit marking my walk with god may they today receive your salvation amen